0: Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Lamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. I want to thank you. Uh, As a congregation, your continued adherence to our protocols have allowed us to continue in worship without any kind of an incident. Um, If you are a regular attendee or member here, you should have received an email last night to inform you of some plans going forward, so uh, you should check that and be tuned in. We have our special Christmas giving that we usually do that we entitle Inside Out, Um, and so if you're contributing to that at all, uh, the inside portion is to our families here that need assistance. And the outward portion is towards Compassion Pregnancy um, Center. This is a group that has done some phenomenal work in our local area in regards to uh, just young mothers that are processing uh, their circumstances and situations with a pregnancy sometimes not expected, oftentimes. And uh, they're doing some phenomenal work, and we're going to be supporting them. And so, if you mark anything towards that, that's where that's going to go this time around. And then finally, Axiom, our youth group, is going to be having their last gathering, and it's going to be a Christmas celebration with proper distancing and everything else um, on our location here this Wednesday at 7 p.m. Um, we would normally, uh, if you're a guesser, we normally would be processing and offering and things like that. Uh, We're doing that mostly online, or there's boxes at the back of the information center. Uh, But we do want to take an opportunity to at least acknowledge, if you're not a follower of Christ, then the idea of offering can be a strange thing. It can be seen as a forced thing, or a guilt thing, or manipulated thing, whatever else. That's definitely not part of how we operate. Um, For us, it's an issue of thanksgiving. Um, It's moving a type of worship that's past just lip service. It's a way of identifying identifying with God. It's all those things. And so if you don't understand that, that's fine. Set it aside. We'll talk about it some other time. Um, But we want to take an opportunity at least to acknowledge that today. So if you'll join me, please, before we go on. Lord, everything we have comes from you. And maybe we've lost a lot in this season, but we still have our lives. And we still have breath within us. All these things come from your hand. And so, Lord, we take this moment to acknowledge Um, the gift and the giver, the the tithes and the offerings. We ask, Lord, that you would take these and use these for your purposes, that we would give them with a spirit of generosity and thanksgiving. God, I pray that you'd shape our thoughts and our minds, not just today, but through the closing portions even of this year, that we might see things differently than how others see them. Give us clarity of thought and of vision, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we began what is going to extend into and conclude next week, um, entitled basically Out of the Silence, Out of the Dark. Uh, some of this for me always has to do with, with that 400 years of silence. We talked about the prophecies last week, that all the way throughout Scripture, that only Christ really fulfills or could fulfill. Um, but there's this period of, of, of silence from the prophets, there's, there's the voice of God goes quiet, in essence, for 400 years until the birth of Christ. And so it's out of that place that, that Christ then is projected into this world. So we talked last week about the promise that are born in those prophecies. Today I want to talk to you about the conflict. I want you to have a broader understanding of this time period beyond um, uh, the general tinsel, silver bells, and crushes that you're going to come across. Um, This has often been referred to as the most wonderful time of the year, but that doesn't mean that it avoids uh, violence or circumstances. We as a people, as human beings, are pretty much defined in our history by conflict if you look at just our own country's history, we talk about um, pre-revolutionary war or post-revolutionary war. We talk about um, the Civil War and the architecture that was before and after that. It's a demarcation point. Uh, the events of World War I changed us as a nation. World War II dramatically changed us as a nation. The Vietnam War, uh, the Iraq War, Afghanistan, the war on terrorism... These are just a few wars, and this is just for our history as America, which is only 200-plus years of time. You go to some place like France and Britain, you're talking literally hundreds, if not thousands, of wars. France and Britain alone fought something that has been referred to as the Hundred Years' War. A hundred years plus, actually, of, of intermittent conflict that was shaping those nations. So conflict... Often defines us historically. It's a it's a constant throughout our history, and as we approach Christmas right now, and we're caught up with beauty and goodwill and and kindness, and all those things are good. And I don't want to take away from that for a moment, and I don't want to shatter anyone's innocence. But Christmas has darker aspects to it. It was during Christmas that the San Bernardino shootings occurred. It was around Christmas time that the uh, Sandy Hook. Murder of twenty-some children occurred as a crazed gunman walked the streets of that element, the halls at elementary school. Um, we know from studies that it's during the holiday season that more domestic violence happens than any other time of the year. And the combination of of expectations and free-flowing alcohol, and and especially now during a pandemic, even more so forced in, it caused a tremendous spike in that. So, for a lot of people in a lot of situations this has a different meaning to it. and conflict, we see wraps all the way through these things. Now, later on in this season of time, we're going to read Luke's account of what took place. We're going to explore the impact of shepherds and angels and magi, and those are genuine and those are real and there's a beauty to them. But there is a dark underside to this season that I want to explore with the hope as we walk through this tunnel of darkness that you'll see the beauty at the end of it. So we begin with these three wise men. Uh, Could be three. Could have been, like we said, 153. We don't know for sure. Uh, they see a star of some type, they read the sky and the astronomy in some way or another, and and so they begin a journey that may have actually taken some period of time for them to get over to Israel, and they're looking for a king of the Jews. So they stop at the royal court, thinking that's the place to start with. And I wonder if these guys are all that wise, actually, because if you're talking about someone who's born king of the Jews and you're going to go talk to the current king of the Jew, I don't think you really want to have that conversation. And so I'm not sure how wise these guys were, at least politically astute. So they go to Herod, who was king at that time. And Herod was a little bit of an insecure madman. Um, He was the king of the Jews by uh, the permission of the Roman Empire. He was insecure because not only was that how he was maintained, but he wasn't even Jewish. Now, he maintained Jewish customs and religious views, but that wasn't his background. It was Edomite, actually. And so when these guys show up, three or 153, and they're saying, hey, we want to look for the king of the Jews born this day, he's like, who are you talking about? He was a great builder, but he was also a vicious ruler. At one point in time, feeling threatened by his wife, he killed her. Another time, he's feeling threatened by sons one, two, and three, and he kills each one of them. Uh, at one point in time, one Roman writer says, uh, it is safer to be King Herod's pig than to be his son. Being a pig and being a Jewish in his dietary habits, the pig would never have been killed because they're not allowed to eat pork. But uh, the son, on the other hand... So this is the guy to whom the three, again, quote-unquote wise men, show up and say, hey, we've heard there's a king of the Jews. Where is he born? And Herod's brain immediately starts to go into insecure mode and consider all the political implications of that. He calls in... Uh, The Pharisees and Sadducees, other ones who study the Scripture, and they tell him, as we said last week, well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's what all the prophecies say. So he tells the guys, he says, look, you go and uh, check it out. Um, And when you find him, you let me know, because I really want to worship him too. With a sword and and an axe. He left that last part off. So the wise men, not picking up on this because they're not politically wise, they, they go and they find uh, um, Jesus and they, they, they worship, they give the gifts that are described. And then they get a revelation from God. He wakes up their, their uh, political sense and say, hey, you, you don't go back to Herod, don't report back to him. So they just kind of fade off into the night. Herod's not hearing from them for a while, they're not answering any texts or cell phones, so he gets upset. And he then launches an attack, and he sends a group of men into that town to murder every child under the age of two. We pick it up in Matthew chapter 2 when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi. He was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. In other words, the Magi may have said, look, we've been traveling for a year, we've been tracking this, and so we know he was born maybe a year ago or some other time period in that time. So he's, to be ultra safe, whatever he was told, six months, a year, whatever, he's going to be very careful. He's going to kill everyone under two years of age. Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled, a voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. There was a prophecy in Jeremiah, and as we said last week, prophecies are both uh, immediate in application and future in application, generally speaking. The immediate application for Jeremiah and the people at that time were uh, the children of Israel being taken into captivity uh, very soon after this time, and Rachel uh, is kind of like the great mother of the nation, and uh, she's viewed that way. So she's weeping for her children carried off. But it was also to point to another time, and it's this time here. So imagine this Christmas, if you will, where soldiers are walking the streets, dragging out children that are two years of age and murdering them. And mothers and fathers who would have attempted to intervene, I'm sure some would have, I'm sure you would have, I would have, would have died in the process as well. This is the dark red underbelly of the holiday, if you will. This is mankind and how we respond to feeling threatened or fear, anxiety, and how conflict enters in. I want to broaden your scope, though, a little broader. I want to kind of do what the Scripture does and and paint this across time and space. In the book of Revelation, uh, John is the last of the uh, um, apostles He's the only one that doesn't die for the faith. Not because he's a coward, this just doesn't come out that way. He does end up exiled. And at one point in time, he has a revelation from God, and it's put into scripture as the book of Revelation, the last book. And in Revelations chapter 12, we have this. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so it might devour her child the moment he was born. You getting the Christmas spirit at this point? Okay. The moment the child was born, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations, all the nations with an iron scepter. Your child was snatched up to God, to his throne. So you have this woman and, and, and you have her pregnant and we're not having the moment, quiet moment in a manger, we're having the screams of childbirth that are taking place and the, the hardship of what's happening here. And it's not a direct description of Mary, per se, uh, but it's evocative of that. Um, And I won't go all the imagery here, but there's something with the 12 stars, and it represents a little bit of the church, or at least uh, Israel in certain ways, and so I won't go into all that. But it's still speaking about the birth of Christ, but in a cosmic sense. And so this woman is giving birth, and you have this horrific dragon Um, is waiting the moment the child's born to devour this child. There's an enmity of some type. One writer puts it this way, the child is no ordinary child. The child is the prophesied child, the Messiah ruler, the pre-existing word. And the Christ who was with God and is God made flesh to dwell among us. This is the child who is to rule all the nations with an iron scepter or rod. The child is the mortal enemy of the dragon and all the evil the dragon represents. The dragon could not get to him in heaven, but now that the Messiah has come to earth as a helpless, vulnerable baby put into the care of mere flesh and blood, folks like you and me, the dragon sees his opportunity to devour the child and win this war that has raged across time and space. How can a helpless child and an exhausted woman who's just given birth resist the cosmic power of the dragon? It looks like all is lost. But we find in the next verse that we have there is her child was snatched up to God into his throne. There's some provision that's made and there's one for Christ as he goes to Egypt. I won't track down that too far right now on the way. But he's caught up and there's a provision that's made for the woman as well. What I want you to capture with this though is the idea of this cosmic adventure, this this child being born, this Messiah, this dragon, and you heard him sweep a third of the stars. We're told that Satan caused a third of the angels to fall with him when he rebelled against God. And so if, if the child is Christ who's to rule all, the dragon is definitely this Luciferic, satanic figure Christmas is a time of beauty. It's a time of grace and miracles, but it also is wrapped into it a darker side. And we bump into it at times. But when we do, we shouldn't be fearful in those times. Yeah, it taints the moment. And it's not extraordinary, despite the circumstances, pandemic or otherwise. We should be able to recognize that as much as this battle has stretched across and what we see in Revelation, that it's only really the continuation of something that began in Genesis. And we referenced this last week. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When, When God is facing the serpent who has deceived man and has caused the fall of mankind. And he says, I'll put enmity, conflict between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, there's always an offspring of evil that continues to do evil. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There will be a wounding, but he's going to ultimately destroy and dismantle you. And so as we look at these, uh, this passage here, we realize that from Genesis to Revelation, throughout all of time, all of humanity and space, there's been this struggle, this conflict that's been in place. Conflict isn't fun. I mean, there's a few psychotics that enjoy it, I know. But for the most part, we don't. I used to think that I enjoyed conflict. I used to think that. And then I realized I really don't. I enjoy resolving it, and I used to be very good at resolving conflict. I could empathize. I could be fair. I could be thoughtful and use logic and truth. My effectiveness has dropped dramatically in recent years because... Nobody cares any longer about truth. They don't care about fairness. Empathy has become increasingly viewed as weakness. Now I'm not giving up on that, and there's still times it's fully effective. I'm just saying it's become less so. So I realized it's not conflict I enjoy. It was the resolution and bringing that peace and closure. Conflict itself, when we are into it, is a disturbing thing. Our heart beats faster fear enters in anxiety imagination is a lack of ability to sleep all sorts of things can play and prey upon our mind and so these things are within us and they're developing and and we deal with them but I want you to step back out of that and get this larger picture again of a conflict that's on a larger scale of which just plays out in a small way in our own lives To give you a view of this, as I have from Genesis to Revelation, I want to take you to the book of Daniel, just quickly. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel's given an impossible task. The king of that time, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream. And he tells his wise men that he wants them to interpret the dream. And so they said, understandably so, tell us the dream. Like any good therapist, tell me the dream, I'll analyze it for you. And he says, oh, no, 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 I know how that goes you tell me the dream, and then analyze it. If you're actually really wise and perceive things that have this spiritual depth, then none of these guys are going to get it. So he says, I'm going to kill all of you. In desperation, Daniel's turned to it at one point in time. Same thing, I'm not going to tell you it. So Daniel goes before the Lord, and the Lord reveals to him the dream that the king had, and he comes to the king and tells him the dream. And then in this passage, verses 32 through 35, he tells him the interpretation of it. He says the head of the statue was made of pure gold that you saw, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron, partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them, so it hit the feet. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, everything were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. He's he's describing, in essence, what many believe to be a series of empires, each silver, bronze, uh, gold, each represented a different empire. And the final one being the Roman Empire. But the key thing is that there's going to be this rock that is not carved by human hands that comes out of the mountain and smashes in the time of that Roman Empire and dismantles and affects all these things and is going to rule in a powerful way. It's going to fill the whole earth eventually. In fact, Daniel goes on in verses 44 and 45, in the time of those kings, in the time of Rome, if you will, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms. It's going to be greater than all these things, Persian, all that stuff, and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. This struggle that goes from Genesis to Revelation, this conflict, it shows in each place throughout Scripture. And Daniel's saying there's going to be a time, though, that's going to resolve this in some fashion, where there'll be a conclusion to this there's going to be something supernatural that will take place. It's a conflict that stretches through time and space, but it also stretches not just through nations and politicians and all those things, but it also stretches through, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn, through the, the heart, a line drawn through the heart of every man. And what's written in Scripture and by Daniel and these other things is that there's going to be a time when all these things are going to come to an end. Yes, there's gonna be a struggle, yes, those things are continue, but there's gonna be a time when this is gonna end. And and we can look at revelations and and we can try to write some of that off and say, well, it's just kind of a weird writing of a weird guy. But if you look at it and and really were to examine scripture, you'd realize that 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 there is such a power to it written by different people over different periods of time on several different continents and different languages, and yet all flowing together with a common theme. And as much as we see in Revelations this dragon waiting and then something being snatched from him, what follows right after that in Revelations 12, verses 7 and 9 is this. It says, right after that event, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven, and the great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth. And his angels with him. This is the ending of all things. And Satan loses in the final analysis of this. This conflict that we see stretching from Genesis to Revelations that Daniel talked about. That we personally experience in our daily lives. That that causes children, whether it's in Bethlehem or whether it's in Sandy Hook, to be killed that shows up in the, the, the stress of our political struggles and the, uh, the fears of our job loss. And I wouldn't ask you today to raise a hand. I wouldn't ask you to respond as to how you emotionally have handled this time period. I don't want you to respond to this. But uh, if I were to ask you, I suspect that, that most, if not many, if not all the hands in this place would go up when we said that we've had fear or anxiety over something in this season. The loss of a job, the loss of a loved one. The politics of things, housing, all these different things that play into our brain and that are accentuated by this pandemic. There's an old classic um, Twilight Zone episode, Twilight Zone in the old days, that was a classic. There's classic rock and then there's classic Twilight Zone. There's five or six different Star Trek shows, but there's the classic Star Trek show. These are nuggets of wisdom and prophecy tossed throughout our culture. And this one, um, which I just remembered really recently, the title of it, has this woman who suffered a nervous breakdown on her own in a cabin when strange things happen: lights, flashing, sounds, weird things. She calls the police and a state trooper shows up and as he's in one side at one point in time, they hear something goes outside and the car has been turned on, uh, on its side and the radio damaged. What caused that? As they go inside, there's other strange things that are taking place that are happening. Another time they come outside and they find the car has been turned completely over and there's this giant huge thumbprint on the side of the car. Oh my gosh, we're dealing with aliens and we're dealing with aliens that are so giant that we're ants in comparison to them, and the fear drives them more deeply. They spend the night in the cottage in the morning, knowing they have to figure out what's going on. They begin to walk and explore, and then uh, they see something, and the woman runs in terror, only to fall and stumble, and then she looks up, and there's this 500-foot being with a single eye. The man comes up to her as well and then seeing there's nowhere else to turn, no one else is going to help, nothing else to do. They're terrified. He pulls out his gun and he shoots at this giant creature thinking just futilely something might happen. And it does. His shots actually penetrate as a giant balloon and the figure collapses upon itself. Puzzled, they'll go over closer to explore. And as they do, they hear a strange twittering and he looks down to find a very tiny, small flying saucer with two very tiny little creatures inside. And as he bends close, he hears them desperately calling home, saying how they've tried to do these different things to terrify the aliens, but have been unsuccessful. Please withdraw us back to our home base before we're destroyed by these giants. The title of the episode is called The Fear. When we're in conflict, and because of the conflict in this world, we have all sorts of things that can capture our imagination, that can terrify us when there's no need to be terrified, that can cause us to tremble when there's no need to tremble. What we celebrate through this season, as bloody as it may be, in certain ways, was actually the beginning of the end of that conflict and a victory that's been won for each one of us. In 15... Twenty-seven. Martin Luther, the original, not our guy King. Martin Luther was in Germany. Prior to this, Martin Luther was a Catholic priest who um, struggled with his own sense of righteousness. He never felt like he was going to be able to live up to God's grace. And then one point in time, he has a revelation that it's by faith that we live and by God's grace and not by works. It changes his whole outline. It also caused him to have conflict ultimately between uh, the rest of the church and himself. As he begins to protest against a church at that time that was more interested in money and finances and resources than it was about people. He and his followers became known as Protestants or Protestants. Um, Eventually forms Lutheran church, things of this nature. He went through a number of struggles and conflicts in this time and one of the most significant ones was in 1527 when a plague began to approach Germany. Millions were dying. It was a a bitter time and, and with no sense of the hope that we have. We are actually probably in the third quarter of our time here, guys, so hang in there. We're near the end of it. But for them, there was no hope in sight. Martin, conscious of this cosmic struggle, that had gone out throughout time and conscious of how that even affected him politically and all the other things that are part of it, and now this plague that had marched upon the civilization that he was part of. He wrote a song. It's one that's familiar, and it came out of this time period. It was conscious of the conflict. It was an awareness of of the beauty of Christmas, but also the underlying um, uh, struggle that was summed up in it. And it's with all that in mind that he wrote this old hymn. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our shelter he amid the flood of mortal ills or conflicts prevailing. For still, I like this line, still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. We're still in the midst of the conflict even though there's a beachhead established at Bethlehem. His craft and power are are great and armed with cruel hate. You have an enemy for your soul that wants to see you and me destroyed. On earth is not his equal. Great, Martin, what do we do now? Well, he comes along in the second verse and he says this. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Doth ask who that may be? Who is it? Okay. Christ Jesus, it is he. And then the line none of you ever understood probably. Lord Sabaoth is his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Lord Sabaoth. Lord Sabaoth means Lord of hosts. In other words, commander of the Lord's armies. The Lord of hosts, the commander of the Lord's armies. This is the same one we talked about last week with Joshua when he encounters this this commanding figure as he enters into the promised land. He says, are you with us or against us? And he's like, I'm neither one. I'm I'm basically Christ in pre-incarnate form. I'm God. And Joshua worships him. You don't worship angels ever. They won't permit it. Lord of hosts, Is his name, commander of the Lord's armies. It's a conflict raging, but there's a commander of armies who's on our side. Martin sees us from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And then this third verse and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. I want you to just repeat that. We will not fear. We will not fear. One more time. We will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word shall fell him. We don't tremble in the conflict because there is one word and that word is Jesus born of a virgin at that critical turning point of history that begins the resolution of conflict that sees that great dragon, that serpent of old fall in defeat. The scriptures tell us in the book of James that the demons know about God and they tremble. We don't tremble We don't tremble. The demons, the dragon, the serpent, they tremble for their doom is sure. And one name, one word, one word completely dismantles them. It's the name of Jesus. All the fears that we've had from all the things that terrorize us and and that we think are so huge, 500-foot giants. They're just twittering little aliens. All the conflict that we struggle with that even runs through the line of our own heart. The times when we tremble and we are fearful, not realizing that the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, the God of all the armies, the Lord of all the armies of God are, are, are there, present with you in the moment. We don't tremble, they do. all the fears, but all the hope. In that moment of time. And yes, all the bloodshed that was before and after all the struggles that have come in part of it. but in that moment of time, something miraculous occurs. And in the birth of this child, The hope of all mankind is met, and all the fears go away, and all the hopes are raised. Father, as we prepare ourselves to celebrate this next week of time, God, I pray that we would lay our fears, our anxieties, and our tremblings at your feet even as the Magi laid gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, that we would leave, leave these things at your feet today. And we'd be able to walk into this world without trembling. Conflict will continue because we're a part of this world, but that we can face it knowing that the Lord of hosts, the commander of all the armies of God, walks with us. I pray that your people would leave this place today or in their homes as they are watching this and be inspired and moved by your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word to know that the dragon's been defeated and the serpent has been stomped on. I commit this, your church, into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.